forms the very foundation of our fellowship with other believers, as well as our mission to witness to non-believers. So this series that we begin tonight will help to demonstrate that holiness, when properly understood, is not just a beneficial addition to our salvation, but it is the very core of what it means to be saved. Without holiness, you cannot be saved. Hello? Truth prevails over all ideologies, all philosophies. It doesn't matter cultural background. Truth will, in the end, prevail over every other form of belief, every other uh, system of belief. It is not true. One day it will pass away, but truth will stand forever. So we will be going through this series, God's Holiness and Ours, to explore how this uh, doctrine of holiness is the very core of what it means to be saved, to be a Christian. Tonight we're going to take our text from Isaiah chapter 6 have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. Tonight, the truth about God that we are going to be discussing is simply God is holy. And the truth uh, for our individual lives, the truth for your life, the truth for my life that we're exploring is I will humble myself in worship before a holy God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we can be gathered here together tonight in your presence and around your word. 
We ask that you would allow your word to speak to us, to challenge us, and to change us, to transform us from glory to glory by your spirit to make us more in your likeness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. He walked deliberately across the courtyard, reveling, though he wouldn't admit it, in the gasp of recognition that followed. See who that is? It can't be. This isn't a feast day. What is he wearing? He had to work to keep from smiling. As he approached the temple doors, his stride lengthened and quickened, even as his mood grew darker. The priests and Levites milling about the entrance were not used to seeing anyone hurrying into the temple. Their glances of puzzled annoyance quickly froze into horrified stares as they grasped what was actually happening. Your majesty, where are you going? He's wearing an ephod and carrying incense. Quick, someone find Azariah. How dare they detain him, the king. Not since the days of the great King David have the Philistines been brought to heel. Nor since the days of Solomon had the name of the Judean king been so widely known and praised. He couldn't help but glance over at the corner tower of the city wall, capped with a brand new catapult that gleamed fairly in the morning sun. His chest swelled with pride. It was high time someone put these uppity priests in their place and showed them what it meant to be a king. He burst through the doors of the temple with his head down. The priests and the attending Levites scuttled out of his way. Then he stopped short with the startled gasp of his own. There stood Azariah, the high priest, his eyes blazing, his jaw firmly set. And behind him stood a group of priests with equally determined faces. No one moved as the king and the priest glared at one another. It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, growled Azariah, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Enraged, Uzziah took one threatening step forward. Then he felt the oddest sensation like a hot iron had touched his forehead ever so briefly. The skin felt suddenly dry. He wiped his hand across his forehead and felt dead skin flake away. He broke out in a cold sweat. He's a leper, unclean. The Lord has judged him, the priests cried out. They rushed forward, strong hands grasped his arms and carried him off his feet. He opened his mouth to shout, unhand me, I'm the king, but the words died in his throat. He was no longer the king, he was a leper. It is this backdrop upon which our text opened tonight, the very mention of King Uzziah in our first verse of scripture, Isaiah 6-1, provides 
an important backdrop for the narrative of the chapter that we're looking at tonight. The downfall of King Uzziah is a classic Old Testament illustration of the corruption of power. At 52 years, Uzziah's reign is the second longest recorded royal reign in all of Scripture. Such longevity is a testimony to an era of unprecedented peace and prosperity marked by remarkable victories over historic enemies like the Philistines and the Ammonites. We read about these victories in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. However, the glory of Uzziah's reign came to a humiliating end in banishment as a leper. It seems likely that his son Jotham ruled as a co-regent until his death. It is at his death that our text picked up. The writer of Chronicles gives us the reason in his introduction to the tragic story in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, when he wrote about Uzziah. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Uzziah's destructive pride was the perfect foil for Isaiah's response here in our text, showing us the interrelationship of humility and holiness. Two assumptions shape our understanding of Isaiah's vision that we read in our text. The first assumption is that this account is a report of Isaiah's initial calling as a prophet based on his confession of sin in Isaiah 6-5. The second assumption is that this vision took place within the precincts of Solomon's temple since the seraphim took a coal from the altar to cleanse Isaiah in verse 6. However, as we study the Bible, it's important for us to bear in mind that neither of these points is explicit in the text itself. These are the assumptions we draw from the text. And though Isaiah's location is a bit ambiguous, what he saw was clearly the heavenly throne room where God sat in royal council. Two important clues are given in the text. First, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now, this could refer to the Lord. It could refer to the throne on which he sat or perhaps to both. But these words that I saw the Lord high and lifted up gives a sense of dramatic height. And added to this description is the comment that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. The word train here has been the object of many speculative investigations built on the assumption that it was a separate garment somehow attached to the robe. As we heard that kings of the day would take parts of the robe of the kings they had conquered and sew it into their robe. But there's no real support for that in the original Hebrew language. The word here in Isaiah chapter 6 that translates into train usually refers to the seam or the edge of a garment, more like the hem of the garment rather than to a separate attachment. So based on this understanding of the word used here, the very first awe-inspiring element in Isaiah's vision is quite simply the size of the Lord. Standing in the temple, Isaiah looked up and saw the exalted Lord seated on a high throne in his heavenly realm. And his figure was so large that just the hem of his garment was as tall as the temple itself. What Isaiah saw then was the Lord seated 
on his heavenly throne with his feet resting in the temple. Perhaps it was this vision that inspired the prophet to later write in Isaiah 66, 1 of God's sovereign majesty in these terms, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Other elements of the vision Isaiah had add to its overwhelming sense of God's holy glory. Isaiah witnessed the presence of these six-winged seraphim who apparently served as throne guardians or throne bearers. And we're not told how many of these seraphim he saw, but there were multiple. The word seraphim derives from the Hebrew seraph, which means to burn. So the best translation or understanding for us then would be that they were burning ones or fiery ones indicating the blinding brightness of their appearance. And it was these seraphim continuously crying, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The triple use of the adjective holy here indicates the Lord's Holiness is superlative. It is unsurpassable that he is the holiest being, perfect and pure. Notice they didn't cry out loving, loving, loving is the Lord. They didn't cry out gracious, gracious, gracious is the Lord. They didn't cry out merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord. And he is all of those things. But what they cried out was holy, holy. Holy is the Lord because holiness is his uh, most uh, primary attribute. It is his holiness out of which everything else flows. And so uh, you cannot talk about God being love without also talking about God being holy, being uh, so pure, so good, so perfect that, uh, you know, it, it causes us. As we'll read here tonight, to stand in awe and, and to be uh, dumbfounded, so to speak, when we really get a glimpse even of his true holiness. There are uh, three other uh, observations that reinforce this point that uh, they're describing him being the holiest being, perfect and pure. Isaiah noted that these seraphim he saw, who are themselves bright, fiery beings, they use their wings to cover their faces, shielding their own eyes from the even greater splendor of the divine glory. Also, their cry explicitly connected the divine holiness as the source of the divine glory that Isaiah has seen. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, proposed that the final line of the angelic cry could be better translated, the fullness of the earth is God's glory, rather than the whole earth is full of his glory. The fullness of the earth is God's glory. In other words, the earth's very biodiversity and beauty express God's profound glory. If that is so, then the ongoingness, the continuance 
of the created order, such as the beauty of each new sunrise and sunset being as unique as a human fingerprint, actually increases the total amount of God's glory. And so the claim of the angel's cry then is not just that God's holiness and glory are greater than that of any other being, but also that those attributes are exponentially increasing as time rolls on toward eternity, that his glory continues to increase. His holiness continues to increase. What should probably surprise us here is the economy of Isaiah's description of this peak into the heavenly realm. The Apostle Paul, later in his writings, described a man in Christ, we often think was just a coy self-reference to uh, Paul. He describes a man in Christ taken up to the third heaven, which is the uh, abode of God, who heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. The Apostle John's vision of the resurrected Christ on Patmos quite literally stunned him. We read in Revelation 1.17, I fell at his feet as dead. There is something about divine uh, self-revelation where God is revealing himself uh, that we see throughout scripture that leaves humanity dumbstruck with awe and fear. It is not uh, at all clear that any of these figures who uh, saw a glimpse of God visibly, there's not any of them that would describe their encounter with God's holy glory as exciting or even pleasant. The seraphim surrounding the heavenly throne were at best bizarre and at worst frightful in appearance, and that's what Isaiah saw most clearly. But when we read about the people from the Bible who had an encounter like that, none of them really in that moment are like, man, this is so awesome. This is wonderful. I've been waiting on this. I deserve to see this. But rather they were struck with fear. As John said, I feel that his feet is dead. While seeking to see the Lord for who he really is sounds like an obviously noble goal, it has never been an encounter that was sought after lightly. In fact, in most of the biblical accounts, it was an encounter that was never sought at all. But for us to commit to seeing God is truly a commitment to a total transformation because it is impossible to see God and remain as you were. Everyone who had such an encounter with God was forever changed by that encounter. Isaiah describes for us the effects of his vision. The seraphic cries, the cries of the seraphim were so continuous and so loud that the heavenly temple was being shaken. This description that we read here in Isaiah chapter 6 clearly brings to uh, our recall the Sinai theophany found in Exodus chapter 19 verses 16 and 18, which was marked by the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud and the mountain that quaked greatly. Sounds quite familiar. Brian Bayer in his book, Encountering the Book of Isaiah, 
notes that the smoke we read about here in Isaiah 6 recalls the incense that filled the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 through 38, and the cloud of the presence of God that descended on the tabernacle and would uh, lead Israel through the wilderness in Exodus chapter 40, verses 36 through 38. So this is what Isaiah sees. He sees uh, the temple itself shaking, not a temple built with hands that you know might have been uh, put on a poor foundation or maybe they left off the hurricane clips on the rafters, but the heavenly temple shaking from these seraphim crying out, the smoke, that cloud of God's glory that was so thick it was difficult to see. And Isaiah's response to this awesome sight was not, wow, in fact, Isaiah pronounced himself as undone. Clear that he saw himself in this moment as though he were doomed to die. Whoa, I never was meant to see this. I'm not worthy to see this. And again, we have to remember the most immediate context for Isaiah's dread was the tragic story of Uzziah. And Uzziah had only trespassed the physical temple. Well, worse fate would await Isaiah, who now has trespassed the heavenly throne room itself. If Uzziah was uh, made a leper and died just for trespassing the physical earthly temple, what would happen to Isaiah who had trespassed into the heavenly temple? God in uh, Exodus chapter 33 verse 20 clearly told Moses when Moses requested a vision of God's glory, thou canst not see my face for there shall no man see me and live. And from that point, the holy glory of the Lord was seen as so overwhelmingly or overwhelming in its power and purity that mere humans could not physically survive it. Moses uh, was granted to see the hinder parts, just like a small portion of God's divine glory. And that was powerful enough to leave his face physically glowing. He had to wrap his face up. When he would talk to the people because of the glow that was on his face from just seeing a small portion of God's glory. So Isaiah's sense of doom that forced him to cry out, woe is me, stemmed from a renowned, a renewed sense of his own sinfulness. Coming into that presence of and a realization of just how holy God is and just how awesome and, and powerful and vast uh, God is reminded him of how imperfect he is and how unholy he is and how sinful he is and that he was, as he put it in his words, a man of unclean lips. Now, we are uh, not given a real, any real clue as to the exact nature of this transgressive speech Isaiah uses, but uh, Brian Bayer, Bayer in uh, his book, Encountering the Book of Isaiah, made a note that biblically speaking, speech reveals what lies in one's heart. And so clearly it's 
out of the abundance of Isaiah's heart this moment that his mouth is speaking, that he is unclean. But as we read through the text, uh, we probably should see Isaiah's words here as a confession of being in a generally sinful disposition rather than a specific transgression he had recently committed. And that view is then strengthened by his further acknowledgement that the entire nation surrounding him suffered the same spiritual malady when he said, I am in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're all just dirty, rotten sinners. And as we look around this room, as far as God has taken us from where he found us, we have to look around and say, yeah, we're still dirty, rotten sinners, and we still are so imperfect, and we still make so many mistakes, and yet his grace and his mercy cover those mistakes, and uh, thankfully he does not expect us to be as pure and perfect as he is. Amen. Before the majesty of divine holiness, all Isaiah could see was his own corruption, and it was magnified in the light of God's moral perfection and absolute beauty. And as Isaiah stood here in this uh, heavenly temple, in this vision, uh, basically <laughs> feeling this sense of doom and awaiting the final blow, uh, just waiting to get zapped, basically, uh, one of the seraphim breaks ground from what it had been doing. Um, and clearly we know this would have been at the Lord's command, uh, but one of the seraphim breaks out of the pattern and goes and takes a burning coal from the altar and proceeds toward Isaiah. Now, Alec Moyder, uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah, points out that in the Old Testament, fire is seen primarily not as a cleansing agent, but as a symbol of divine wrath. Um, you see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, among other uh, places. And so Isaiah, once he saw the seraphim, break out of the pattern, go grab a coal, and start heading toward me, probably thought, hey, he's been dispatched to finish me off. This is it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew this was going to be it. Um, but then something unexpected and amazing happened. Instead of incinerating Isaiah where he stood, the angel gently touched his mouth. Now it's unclear whether uh, he touched his mouth with his hand or with the tongs or with the coal itself. But when, it, when the uh, seraphim touched him, holding that coal, he pronounced him forgiven and purified. And so fire that was meant for judgment in their uh, minds and in their background and the things that they had seen prior now had become fire for purification. And it's in this moment uh, that Isaiah's confession is triggered um, and we can only imagine, or this moment itself was triggered by his confession. He had clearly confessed that he was unclean and was fearful because of the fact that he was a man of unclean lips. And it was that confession that probably triggered this purification. Um, we can only imagine what might have happened if Isaiah had attempted to escape the divine presence rather than confessing or uh, you know, he had treated that moment differently. It could have been a fire of incineration. You're done. Um, a key aspect, though, of God's moral perfection is that he is perfectly loving, perfectly merciful, perfectly gracious, and perfectly forgiving. And so 
So forgiveness as believers should be understood as an outflow of divine holiness. It's not an opposition to his holiness. It comes because of his holiness. Uh, because he is so pure and so perfect, his holiness, uh, in his holiness, then his forgiveness flows out of that. Because he is perfectly merciful, perfectly gracious. The Apostle John summarized this principle in his first epistle in 1 John 1 9, when he wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we witness transpired here uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 from our text was a shift in Isaiah's foundational relationship with God. He went from a sinful outsider to a now made holy insider. Isaiah was now positioned to hear the deliberations of uh, Yahweh's counsel that he was witnessing. We often wrongly assume that the Lord's question, whom shall I send and who will go for us, was addressed to Isaiah, when instead it was addressed to the council. Um, Christopher Sykes points out the overlooked parallels between the council scene depicted here and the one described by the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, verses 19 through 22, where God deliberated, if you're familiar with the story, God deliberated the best way to accomplish the downfall of the evil king Ahab. He's like, how can I bring this about? And uh, there was uh, an angel that says, well, I'll send a line of spirit. Tell him what he wants to hear. He'll just follow after that opportunity to finally take him out. But that same scene, or council type scene, is what we're seeing here. And Isaiah, given his now sanctified status, was allowed in to the divine discussion in much the same way that God included Abraham in his deliberations regarding Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. So without even knowing what the task was, when he hears this counsel, God asking this question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now ask him, well, what exactly does that require? What kind of position are you trying to fill here? What do you need them to do when you send them? What, what are they going to do when they get wherever it is you want them to go to? He didn't ask any of those questions. He just said, here am I. Send me. And so he volunteered for divine service. Sometimes uh, we seek to be called before we've been cleansed. And we seek to be cleansed without making full confession. Truth be told, some of us would much rather skip the whole confession forgiveness component of worship and go straight from praise to commission. Oh, I like what I feel here. Oh, I like the song, sir. Well, what can I do? And yet there's a process that needs to take place, much like we saw in Isaiah. When he entered into the presence of God, realized he was in the presence of God, rather than, oh, wow, I like this, this is pretty cool, um, he actually was like, whoa, like, there should be a sense of uh, reverent fear that comes over people when they enter into one of our worship And we know it... Uh, to have happened many times in the past. Pastor Landry has talked about uh, 
uh, one of his neighbors of the past, no longer a neighbor of his now, but years ago, someone who lived right there beside him uh, in Fequette, when she would come to our church, she told him, well, I can't. I love going to your church, but every time I go to your church, I just cry. Something, you know, I just feel something makes me just want to cry. You're feeling God's holy presence. Like that holiness is just like, whew, that's more than I can take almost. And it should, uh, people should feel that in our services. Because, and it's not because of anything of us. Again, we know, uh, you know, uh, we've got great musicians, great singers. Uh, thank God for AV people nowadays that throw lyrics up on the screen. You know, it's amazing how we used to sing without lyrics on them. Somebody got smart and went to the whole transparency overhead thing back in the day. Some of y'all probably remember that. They had to have somebody there like change the transparency in time. Um, but now, just a click of a button and uh, the lyrics get put up because I'm not losing my memory as I get older. I just got a lot more files to dig through to find that memory. So that song's probably in there somewhere. I probably know those lyrics, but. It's a whole lot easier for them to put it on the screen for me to dig through all these files of, you know, X number of years of life and find that file. I used to think, you know, you started losing your memory as you got older. You just got more, more experience than you could dig It's not gone. It's still there. Somebody's, come on, I got some witnesses in here. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all like, I hadn't thought of it that way before. I thought I was just getting old and couldn't remember nothing. So actually, I got it. I am getting a little bit older, but it's all these experiences God's blessed me to have that now I can't always pull up the files quick. I got too many drawers to go through here. You're welcome. <laughs> Find that in the book of Jeremy, chapter 3, verse 10. <laughs> but uh, when people come in our service, we thank God for the talented musicians. Thank God for the talent scenes. We thank God for the teams of people that make Sunday school possible, make youth ministry. But the talent is not really what we're after. And we know that as a, a local assembly, we understand. We're always uh, challenging all the members, all the uh, volunteers on every team to be in prayer and to you know, be working on that relationship with God, to take time and, and get here early and get through with our practices. Uh, or get through setting up your classroom and spend some time in prayer to get your mind right to get yourself out of the way because we all deal with life. We all have the problems. We all have disappointments, frustrations. We don't want that burdening us and weighing us down once church time hits and it's time to minister to people. We want that all offloaded. Our focus to be on God. Our focus to be on uh, what God can do in people's lives so that when people come in, they then can be ministered to the anointing that we're trying to get. Right, and so we're uh, you know thank God for talented singers and all that, but if they weren't anointed, they're not anointed. People aren't going to feel that holiness of God's presence that will cause an Isaiah-like response of repentance and wanting to draw near to God that will allow this cleansing part to take place. We don't want people to come in and you know think, oh man, this is like the best concert I've ever been to. What can I do? I want to be a part of the team. Can I get up here and play an instrument? I, I know how to play this. I know how to... You can't just come in off the street and join our praise team. doesn't work that way here. How many instruments can you play? Six? Okay. And? Where's, where's your fruits meet for repentance? Where, 
Have you been baptized in Jesus' name? Have you? That, that's more important because we're here to make disciples. And we're here to bring people into the presence of God. And so people can come with all kinds of skills and talents. And No, you don't get to jump on the team just because. There's got to be this process of cleansing, of confession, of forgiveness before you then are qualified to answer the call to divine service. And we do believe getting people involved as soon as we possibly can to get them connected, but that's for relationship. That's for the discipleship process. There, we all know <laughs> there's tiered involvement in this church. You don't get to go to certain levels until these others have taken place. We definitely want to connect people to the body. We want them to feel that sense of family, that sense of belonging, that sense of opportunity to grow. And we want them to know that there's other things available, but we're not just going to put them over a ministry and they just walk through the door and they ain't even repented of their sins. What sense would that make? Because you're not qualified for divine service until you've been through the cleansing and confession and forgiveness. And what we have found to be true is that if we will allow ourselves and if we'll create an environment where others can allow themselves to stand in the serious light of God's holiness that instead of condemnation, they find forgiveness and they find purpose. What happened to us, we found forgiveness and then we found purpose but we had to get into that uh, searing light of God's holiness and see him for who he truly is and to really get an, uh, even a glimpse of that level of pure holiness, pure Light, pure truth, pure, I mean, you can name any attribute. God is that in its purest form. And if we can get a glimpse of that, that's why we should always uh, seek to enter into each service with a sacred reverence in our heart. What the Bible often calls the fear of the Lord. Uh, we shouldn't take any opportunity for granted, but come with that uh, reverence that here, so to speak, uh, taking advantage of the opportunity. Because we don't know how many we have uh, in our future. Um, we often think we've got forever. <laughs> we think this life's just going to go and go and go. But the older we get, the more we realize it's probably not going to go forever. This body is starting to break down a little bit. And <laughs> a bit at the time. And things we never thought would affect us. I remember when I first started working with my uncle, I don't know, X number of years ago, um, he was in his mid-40s at the time, and I was you know, 20 year old kid, you know, and he talked about his knees hurt, or his this and that, and I'm like, he's like, you wait till you get to be my age, I'm like, I ain't never going to feel like this. You put that weight because of whatever, like, I don't know what you did, but like, have to grow like that, and then I got there. Yeah. <laughs> Early 40s. Why do my knees hurt like this? Why do my ankles? Oh, thank God it's not like that anymore. Wow, we're literally the first like four or five steps in the morning. I'm gonna sit so bad in my feet and ankles for so many years of been here. This, this wasn't part of the plan. Sign up. Um, but the older we get, the more we can realize, yeah, I guess I'm not invincible. The Superman comics lied to me, man. 
what we realize we don't have, uh, you know, as you get older, but it's true of any age. Um, most of you know that my brother tragically died when he was only 26 years of age. I certainly would have thought he had far more years than that. So we just don't know. Many of you have lost loved ones at young ages. And so we don't want to take any service opportunity for granted. We don't want to take any uh, opportunity to be in divine service for granted. We want to take advantage of those opportunities. And we want to serve with excellence. But we know we can't serve with excellence until we've been through the cleansing and the forgiveness. And that's an ongoing thing because, again, we're not perfect people. And so it's not like you made confession once and you're never going to have to confess to God again that you messed up. That's why John wrote, if, you know, if we will confess our sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Uh, none of us enjoy having our faults exposed. Author Scott Mounts uh, asserts that we are actually neurologically wired to fear criticism in much the same way that we fear failure or change. Even happy people it's been found, are four times more likely to remember criticism than praise. Experts say it takes our brain at least five positive events to make up for the psychological effect of just one negative event. No wonder we're so averse to the Christian discipline of confession. Literally admitting all of these faults and going through. Like, logically, why would we... Uh, so afraid of being found weak and imperfect, openly share our weaknesses and imperfections. Logically, it doesn't make sense, but we know that the kingdom of God doesn't operate on logic. It operates in uh, the realm of faith, and God's uh, ways are not our ways. And he knows that confession and uh, admitting those things, bringing those things to light, is how we can deal with them, how we can overcome them and move on past them, right? So confession is a core Christian discipline. We're commanded by Scripture. In James 5, 16, confess your faults one to another. <clears throat> the key distinction being uh, that we're confessing to other believers, not uh, to a priest, per se. And pray for one another that you may be healed. So the idea that confession is part of worship is important, though difficult for us to grasp. And the difficulty may be related to the abuse uh, of practice that we've seen in other faith traditions and that we've heard about happening in people's lives where they uh, you know, tried to do the biblical thing and confess their faults and then somebody used that against them and uh, it was abused. And so that makes some people hesitant to follow this admonition to confess. But uh, the self-revelation of God that you and I experience in worship calls us to also be self-revealing, uh, to be authentic, to be open, to be brutally honest at times. And we all struggle with that. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of us in this room that you would hesitate if, if I had a wizard hanging on my nose. You wouldn't even say that. you just let it dangle here and make faces at me. Hey! Tell me, don't let or, or, you know, we're eating lunch and something's over here on my chin. I don't even feel like I'm scared. Just let me go for like 30 minutes or an hour and don't say, like, that can right here. You just like, but we don't like being that brutally honest. Oh, kind of awkward telling him he's got that thing on his face. 
And that's a, that's a simple thing, right? That's such a little thing, but we hesitate. How much more are we hesitant to be brutally honest about our struggles, about the thing that we're trying and fighting to overcome, and yet uh, how much more powerful we would become in overcoming that if we had someone on our side, someone that we knew we could trust, someone that we knew would not abuse that knowledge, somebody that we knew would be praying with us and standing with us. So that's why God put uh, this confession principle in his word. God can't be honored by a veneer of high-sounding words and beautiful phrases that cover over a heart that's roiling with all manner of evil thoughts and desires. He's more concerned about what's in the actual heart than what we're putting out as a front. So confession is, in a sense, an automatic spiritual response. If, if we truly uh, are wanting to become more like him, any glimpse of his holiness and righteousness shows us in the starkest of terms our own sinful misdeeds, which we must either confess or ignore to our own detriment. So he tells us that we should confess. Now, God's not going to compel us to confess, just as he will not compel any aspect of worship, but he invites us to he invites us to all the aspects of worship. He invites us to give thanks. He invites us to prayer and supplication. He invites us to intercession. Um, he invites us to clap our hands. He invites us to leave. He invites us, right? Um, he doesn't compel it. He doesn't demand it of us. But he does invite us. And so, uh, as beings created for worship, it's our most natural reaction to Take advantage of those invitations and to accept those invitations uh, as our reaction to his presence and feeling him drawing us. Confession is worship's crucial turning point because it opens the path to forgiveness and cleansing. Without it, we remain trapped in our self-deception and refinement. And when we lie to ourselves that we're fine, we're not hurting anyone, uh, we're not really doing anything all that bad, then there can be no saving transformation, there can be no divine intervention. There has to be the confession element. Confession is the admission of need that provides God a path for the demonstration of his power. If you're not willing to confess to him what you're struggling with, how can you expect him to help you? Worship, honestly, is the only safe context for acts of confession. It is in worship that our innate fears of criticism and exposure meet the assurance that the one we worship is holy and gracious, just, merciful, righteous, and loving. Our wrongdoing will become reconciliation. Our sinfulness will be consumed by his holiness and our cries of woe will be turned to calls to service. But it's only when we will yield to that pulling of our heart, that drawing of this spirit. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. Again, thank you for being here tonight. I'm looking forward to uh, Christmas presentation, Candy Cane Lane, Saturday night and Sunday. Uh...
As we pray in dismissal, will you pray with me for Tom and Rhonda Cordillo? These are uh, elderly neighbors of the Ogdens who were very sick with COVID and asked for and need prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that we can come to you and we can confess our faults. We can confess the things that we're struggling with. And we know that you are gracious and merciful towards us, that you're willing to forgive us. We ask, Lord, that you would go with and tell us. You would lead us and guide us. Help us to live lives that honor you. Help us to continue in our pursuit of becoming more like you. We pray tonight also for Tom and Wanda Cordillo that you would touch their bodies, that you would strengthen them, that you would bring healing into their bodies. We ask it in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, and we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.